0: Hello and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're listening today, it's likely you heard my interview with movie star Chris Pine and screenwriter Geo Parsons. If you're new here, make yourself at home. Relax, because I want you all to enjoy yourselves. Pour yourself a cup of tea, chamomile, oolong, maybe some mint tea. Hey, go nuts. Get out the ice cream. I promise it pairs well with this show. On each episode of this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second-guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming comics and actors and established producers, authors, and writers. We banked all the episodes, which also makes this series a time capsule of events that occurred throughout an historic summer. You can follow me, your host, at JClaudeDeering on both Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow our show handles on Twitter and Instagram at thingsaregoinggreatforme. Look, I get it. We know a lot of podcasts ask you to rate and subscribe. It's a pain in the ass to remember to do even one more thing in your day. But here's the thing, we're doing this as a limited series until you demand more. So if you like any of what you hear today, do us a big kindness. Subscribe to the show, leave us a nice comment, give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcast from today. Hey, Apple podcast peeps. We see you Spotify folks. Hey now, Stitcher fam. What's up you freaky pocket casts cats. We love you all equally. And we hope you love what you hear, and we want to keep bringing you new episodes of this show. And by the way, we're thrilled to be sponsored for this limited series by Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on Earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be a force of nature. Icelandic Glacial, natural spring water sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon, IcelandicGlacial.com, and a retailer near you. Today's guest is Clark Peters, star of The Five Bloods, Harriet, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, HBO's Treme, and of course, he played the iconic Lester Freeman on HBO's The Wire. He's one of the best actors and artists alive. I'll be speaking with him in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my conversation with Della Saba, She's an Actors' Gang company member. If you're not familiar with the Actors' Gang, it's the Los Angeles theater company started by a group of actors, including Tim Robbins. Former company members include Helen Hunt, John C. Riley, Kate Walsh, Jack Black, and Kyle Gass. Della also plays the voice of young Judy Hopps in the animated film Zootopia. She has an exciting voiceover career that also includes roles in Ralph Breaks the Internet, Family Guy, and Guardians of the Galaxy. Della and I have a few things in common, including some shared heritage, it's also a lovely conversation about the art of acting and actor training at the renowned Stella Adler Studios, where we're both alums. Stick around. You're not going to want to miss it. Joining me again today is my co-host, Winston Carter. Winston, where can people find you online?
1: Yeah, I'm online at, uh, yeah, Winstonius on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can listen to my other podcast, Try It you Like It, wherever you find podcasts. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the internets. <laughs> Great so so our our interview with clark
0: peters has taken on added meaning uh because of course Mm -hmm. on friday there was the terrible news of the passing of movie star and icon chadwick boseman he died after a four-year battle with colon cancer his death stunned the world clark peters worked with chadwick on the recently released spike lee film defy bloods a movie about four african-american vets battling the forces of man and nature when they returned to vietnam seeking the remains of their fallen squad leader, played by Bozeman, and the gold fortune he helped them hide. Uh, Winston, h- how are you doing with this news about Chadwick Bozeman?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, it's rough. For our, for our listeners who don't know, I'm I'm black, so uh, I feel like I need to give that context. Yeah. Um, really upsetting. It's always hard whenever, you know, celebrities, we don't know them. Like, like I don't have a personal interaction with this person, but I do have... Uh, relationship with the roles they played and what those roles mean yeah uh and especially so young and like seemingly out of nowhere i think is the thing that's really catching everyone by surprise here
0: yeah it was very shocking he was uh there was a a viral moment or there was a moment that went viral a little while ago um Mm -hmm. it feels like maybe it was a year ago where he appeared very thin in some Mm -hmm. videos and people were uh concerned
1: yeah uh I, I very much respect the ability for someone to keep this personal, uh, especially someone as yeah. famous as him. Um, and I'm honestly, like, really inspired, like, if you think about it. I mean, that means like, he was filming Black Panther and New. I mean, like, yeah. think about, like, how grueling that is on fucking anybody. Yeah. Like, that's truly incredible. I mean, to yeah. make one movie is that you're the lead of is like running like 10 marathons and to do that while dealing with a particularly shitty form of cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just inspiring. Like it's really, I mean, I'm not the person who gets choked up at like these types of things and I, in general, don't have them affect me very deeply, but there's like, like there's like two that have ever really affected me this way. So young, so, uh, very obviously super talented. Yeah. Uh, and and just straight up out of nowhere. And in the middle of, like, a million other crises, Everything else that's you know, going on, yeah. It's, yeah. Like, I mean, w- like, it's weird that that's what we're talking about. The NBA didn't play playoff games this week. Like, yeah. crazy fucking things are happening in the world. And for good reason. Like, like there's it's good that the NBA was like, no, we're not doing this. Yeah. Like, that's a good thing. But... It's just like how many things at once.
0: I know. We're seeing many, many folks posting articles and tributes, including um, talking about uh, their kids' love of Black Panther. Um, this is yet another uncomfortable conversation for parents to be having with their kids during a tumultuous year.
1: Yeah, I can't even imagine. Like, I'm like, think, uh, I'm, I'm. There's a bunch of reasons why I'm happy I don't have kids right now. And that's, that's the, this is certainly one of them where I'm like, I can't even imagine. I cannot imagine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird conversation to have. You know, my oldest Henry loves that movie. um, And I just don't know what, what exactly to say or when to say, when to say it about that, about, about, about him. I'm just not sure yet. I'm still kind of processing.
1: Yeah. And it's, um, It's one of those things where, you know, there's a, I'm trying to think of how to say this and not sound so pretentious. Um, Movies and entertainment, we get it. Like, it doesn't, we we all know, like, okay, it's not, you know, frontline doctors. It's not, uh, not, you know, uh, FBI agents out there stopping human trafficking. But it is inspiring and super important and it does have a direct effect on how people see themselves and yeah. how they see the world. And uh, few people in recent memory have had, like, such a run of roles that did that. So, yeah, it's it's impactful. It really yeah. does, like, like the stories we tell and the stories that we are told have a long-lasting effect on us. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: His most iconic role was, of course, uh, King T'Challa, the Black Panther, what was another one of your favorite uh, Chadwick Boseman roles?
1: I mean, him playing Jackie Robinson, for she's he's pretty unbelievable. Him playing James Brown, and yeah. it's like, such a, it's one of those things where you don't even, like, you know someone has an, a defined iconic presence, but you don't even grasp it until you see someone else do it. And mm. then you're like, whoa, that, fool. okay. I, I knew this person, like, had a distinctive voice, had a distinctive way of carrying themselves, but like, then you see it and you're like, oh, oh, shit. Yeah. Wow. Like it's really defined. It's kind of the, uh, this is like a bad example, but it reminds me of the first time I saw someone do a good Harrison Ford. And you're like, oh yeah, holy shit. Like, but then to see someone be able to do that level, that caliber of work uh, through an entire film is like
0: unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I think like partly with, with, with uh, Chadwick Bozeman was that like throughout these various characters that he played, he, uh, with an incredible range, um, and he covered a lot of ground in his young career. Mm. There is, you know, something in his, there's something about him himself that is, and people have commented on this, that there is, there's a soulfulness in his, um, that sort of emanates from his eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something that he brings to these characters that goes beyond um, an imitation or an impression of these iconic people that he's played um but that is unique in terms of his ability to storytell
1: no i agree yeah yeah he was just very very talented and like and i think you know it's it's hard to it's really hard i think to grasp so like you know i'm i'm so i'm i'm black i'm mixed race and so i have like kind of dealing with that my own elements of that right of my involvement in the black community like my family and all that stuff uh but one of like the it's so significant like you know he's part of a it's how am i saying this it's really hard to put just how goddamn big of an impact black panther had like of all the roles he played of all these incredible uh real people uh it's hard to Really state how important Black Panther is. Yeah, and I still don't think we've seen the. Not only did it make a tremendous amount of money for a black led movie that's mostly black people, that's mostly set in Africa, that's unbelievable, right? Um, yeah, but then the cultural impact it had and still does on so many people I know it's our it sucks. It just sucks. I mean, if you like see people who are really upset by this, it's because. You know, uh, the black community had Superman for three years, and then he died. Like that's mm. what happened, and it's very difficult. Um, and like, and I'm I'm putting my this is my take on it, which is still someone on the periphery of that community. You know, um, I can't really capture necessarily the wholeness of how of of that movie and his role and its importance. But yeah, and it's just it's tragic. It's really unfortunate. I I've really taken uh, personally. I've been focusing on the idea that like. Look at how much like I've I've acted in some very low budget movies and it was exhausting and I wasn't even doing like a great job <laughs> and he fucking did amazing work for four, four full years. Well, yeah. that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. like that's really, really crazy. And like that's worth like no like holy shit like you watch Endgame that dude has cancer and he's doing the shit he's doing in fucking Endgame like that's unreal. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like, it's, it's so tragic and so shocking and came out of nowhere, but it should also be genuinely inspiring because that's like, wow, you know, like most people can't do that on their best day.
0: Mm -mm. Now it's important to note that, you know, my interview with Clark Peters is from back in June of this year and the cast was in the middle of their press week for Defy Bloods. It was less than two weeks after the brutal murder uh, by a police officer of George Floyd. Um, So we didn't hardly at all talk about Chadwick Boseman's role as Storm and Norman in the film. Um, Since the movie has come out, I've seen it. I thought it was one of Chadwick's best performances. I wonder if Chadwick Boseman would win a posthumous Oscar for his role as Storm and Norman.
1: Wouldn't bet against that, right?
0: I don't know. Yeah, I think it would be incredibly poignant if he did.
1: I mean, I don't know, like, I I don't know, it's a weird, it seems like, it seems like all, uh, what I would say is it seems like too small of a tribute, does that make sense?
0: Oh, to win an Oscar would be too, to win, like, uh, he would, he would, it would probably be best supporting actor, so, but you're saying to win an Oscar is sort of not, doesn't really like, his
1: impact is bigger than that, it's kind of, oh, of
0: course, no, 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 I agree, yeah. Which is
1: really, I think, really kind of saying something like the other example we have for something similar to this, right, is is Heath Ledger, right? Yeah. Um and he won his Oscar and you know it was very obviously very well deserved and great. But I'm like, if I really think of like cultural impact, like those two things are not the same. They're not even on the same level, which is kind of amazing that like this actor comes out, doesn't do a tremendous amount of work, but the work he does is like It important you know yeah um it's pretty amazing
0: yeah it really is um and very very sad um okay folks you've been very patient with us
1: <laughs> sorry for putting you through this audience no. thank you for coming back <laughs> no i mean uh, to be, <laughs> be confronted with with a very sad uh bit of talk but it is what it is
0: it is what it is yeah rest rest in power to chadwick boseman uh-huh and without further ado, uh, here now is a father figure that we could all use, Mr. Clark Peters. Now, uh, there has been, uh, in the midst of this health crisis, we've had uh, these horrific recent murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmad Aubrey here in the United States. There has been uh, Somebody, I, I saw somebody writing about the fact that because we are all home already, that this has been a a moment in time where people can show up, uh, demonstrate and march. And we're seeing that not only here in the United States, we are seeing it in Britain. It's going on as we speak in Britain. Yes, uh, with statues of coming down today. I saw in uh, I believe in Bristol. And uh, of course, John Boyega gave an incredibly impassioned speech in Hyde Park, uh, calling out the names of these three recent American victims of police violence, and also Sandra Bland, and uh, and an Englishman, Mark Duggan, uh, the victim of a race-based criminal murder by the UK police in 2011. There had always seemed to be a prevalent and potentially poisonous theory that racism doesn't exist in the UK the way that it does in the States. Do you have a take on that?
2: <laughs> um, yeah, I've got a take on it. Yes, it exists here. Yeah, you know, um, it's just cloaked in a different methodology. Yeah, you know, the um, racism all across the board, right, has got to be seen as something that is attached to uh, capitalism. All right. Um, Prior to people being black and white in in America, um, they were African, they were Cherokee, they were Narragansett, they were French, they were Dutch, they were German, they were English, you know? But when when those people of color began to play uh, the Europeans against each other, seeing that they were at each other's throats, that's when the notion of wait a minute you know these people are a common energy uh, 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 enemy against our uh, um, against our capitalistic uh, um, plans. You know? so it was easy to divide and conquer in, in that respect and I dare say that's going you know, it's still here it's still across the board. it's the same thing that's happening in Europe now you know and I say I say on a level in Europe that is that is not being um, that has not been well publicized. You know, when African unions decide that they don't want to pay the pay the bills any longer that they have paid for over 50 years, five times over, and they say, wait a minute, we're going to use our money to bolster our economies and make sure that our countries are are uh, 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 are not dependent on your charity, Europe is getting very upset about that, you know? And so you do have notions of Brexit. You do have the gelé jeune and the French not understanding why France is upping the prices of their, of their oils and and their rates and everything, because they're no longer getting that money from the, from the countries, from the colonies or extorting it, I must say, from those, from those countries, you know? So um, it's, 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 the racism is on many, many levels, you know, the racism is on many levels. Um, And it's the same there as it is here. Um, what is different is that there it manifests itself in overt violence. Here it is it's sort of quiet and insidious, you know um, mm. And it's cloaked in the language. It's really cloaked in the language. This is their language. you know so unless you unless you are uh, um, well versed in English, not American right English. And uh, then you you won't, you won't know what's happening around you. you right yeah, now, the British do
0: they, they do seem to speak in code in in a way all their own. The Brits,
2: yes, absolutely, absolutely, and most of, it goes over most Americans' heads as well. You know, as far as like you know the demonstrations today, you know, and and um, and you know, and it coming on the back of the uh, um, of the pandemic. I think it's interesting and curious that it that is happening like that and of course people want to get out having been locked up so part of their getting out is the frustration of being being uh, locked up in the first place right secondly um george floyd was just is not the martyr he's the man who the world has seen uh, as an example of police brutality on all black people, and so it must be understood that that is first and foremost of what his function is in all of this. It is not that oh George was a nice guy and and, and he got and, and he got murdered. No, that is not the case. It is that yet again, this has happened, and yet again like this, in such a nonchalant way. For mm. that man to be standing on his neck with his hands in his pocket. Mm.
0: Yeah. You know? Brutal.
2: But at the same as brutal, yes. And historically brutal. And that's yeah. why you have like the Maoris coming on out doing mm. the haka. Yeah. Because that's what the British did to them. Right. And they recognize that. And right. they remember that, you know?
0: Yeah. Now you have so, had you've had a sorry to interrupt, uh I was gonna say you have had your own history of Demonstrating is that correct? And and protesting is it, is yes. it true that you were arrested uh, in, in, during a protest in uh, during the Vietnam War years?
2: In the in the very same way that um, that um, those peaceful people were um, were, st- were attacked by the police in order for the forty fifth man in the White House to take a photo op. Is the same way that it happened to us in uh, in seven in uh, two thousand I think 2000, 2001, somewhere around there right um, and I was registered as a first aid I wasn't meant to be part part you know, participating in the um, in the demonstration yeah you know, my brief as part of the the the, uh, the students who came on down from Boston to uh, participate in the uh, um, in the um, in the demonstration against Vietnam, was to look after everybody. You know, I had a big red cross on my back, I had a, sali- a, 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 a first aid kid with me, I had a gas mask just in case anything went down, you know, and, uh, and our brief was to number one, follow what the police say, number two, take care of anybody who was injured, whether it was an mm. officer or whether it was a, a, a protester. And on the particular day that we were um, that we were uh, shanghaied, you know, was a day when John Mitchell came in front, uh, came out and asked everyone to clear this area and mm. said, you have 20 minutes to do so. In three minutes, we were following his directions
0: and 10 minutes
2: later, we were arrested.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A bait and switch almost,
2: you know, just. Uh, yeah. So I'm. I, I, um, you can understand my my distrust of this of this whole system, and, I, and at such a young age, and trying to under, and trying to do the right thing, you know, um, it's it, uh, you got to go a long way to convince me that that all of this is just, that all of this is right, you know, and even the demonstrations, I want you know, sometimes sometimes I wonder about about them, you know. Um, it can be used. It can be manipulated. It be manipulated uh, the way that the the uh, media will look at it. You know, can be right. ser- can serve or be can can damage the you know, the the idea.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that there's been lots of conversation about the sort of the combination of the protest and the demonstrations, and then following up with the vote in in order to sort of move the conversation. Um, and of course, there's always going to be that struggle with the other side of the. What they call an argument mm-hmm. um, about uh, whether and uh, what you're saying, sort of uh, uh, the purposes of of the of the um, of the demonstrations and and the way in which they are carried out. I wanted to ask you a little bit about theater, which is very important to you and important mm-hmm. to me and 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 many. And uh, to talk a little bit more again about the, the way that the uh, pandemic is going to affect theater. Um, and I was curious what your thoughts were about the immediate future for theater. I saw in Germany, they're removing seats in venues and spacing the seats apart.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, I saw that Claire Foy and Matt Smith are gonna do a, a reading of a production called Lungs, which I think they had done at the old Vic or the Young Vic they're going to do it again. They're going to stage it and then stream it with no audience in front of them. Um, do you think that this is going to forever change theater? Do you do you think that theater needed to be changed anyway? Is this an opportunity?
2: Um, I don't think that I don't think that theater needed to be changed. I think that the theater prices for tickets needed to be changed.
0: Yes, completely agree with that.
2: Yeah. I think that in doing so that um, that the uh, hierarchical structure that is set up, that has now been imposed on theatre, um, needs to change. You know, so that you know, someone who has never been on a stage, but is a- an A-lister in Hollywood, for example, is now going to be leading a company of actors who have worked their lives um, to get where they've where they where they've arrived and are still being paid less just because this face comes onto the stage you know um so i think that that needs to change you know uh, overall i don't think theater will ever change because theater has been here since people gathered together to tell stories you yeah. know so in that respect it will never change you know um in the immediate future i am concerned you know i am concerned there's no doubt about it you know. Uh, what is happening to the theaters? Um, but I think that the that the domino effect of of, uh, of it all will affect the economy, you know. And theaters will those tickets will either rise up or everything will come down proportionally.
0: Yeah, you know? right. Do you think it's part in part the real estate of London or or or, or New York City that you know maybe theater needs to move outside. Uh, these these places,
2: you know, I've I've written I've written a a, a wonderful little story um, where a group of actors hijack a the theater because um, the producers are raising the price of tickets in order to hold on to their real estate, right? Simply for that, simply for that reason, you know, and they uh, um, they realize that. It's not these producers, but the producers are just frontmen for a conglomerate who are trying to buy up all of the, uh, uh, the real estate in um, wherever this place is, you know. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the real estate does have, have an impact on, on, uh, on it, and that can be manipulated as well, you know. Uh, I remember when Cameron McIntosh was asked to, to, to he went to a meeting, somewhere in Europe because they were going to build this town and in this town uh, they wanted a theater and near the town was an airport you know and I think he went there to have a meeting with the town to bring one of his shows there because it was so popular that people would fly in and bring revenue to this to this town you know that's when I thought my god is that where theater is is that what theater's gotten to? You know, but yes, it has. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. I wanted to. Do you think that this is what the the Konstantin Stanislavsky, with that and and Chekhov, what they were doing? That, is this what this was all about? Was this just a revolution against rich people? Uh, yes,
2: yes. <laughs> well, you know, I I go I go back to what I was saying at at the top of our conversation. You know, with the uh, um with the racism, yes, it's about economy. It's totally about economy, you know? Um, for, some, for, for some producers here to close to, to fire, to fire all of their casts, to fire them, not to, to, to give them any compensation whatsoever, right, to right. even carry them through for one month, not even to offer that, but to put the burden of that on, on, the, on the taxpayer that's an economical statement. Yes, that's a statement of economy. You know, so um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, that that all of those Eastern European uh, um, uh, um, um, writers were were spot on with that, with the class struggle, and and weren't they right?
0: <laughs> yeah, indeed. So now you and I, so we have a mutual friend and your brother Dave. Uh, Who's a good friend of my dad's. Uh, I do want to thank Dave for passing along this interview request. I have to thank my dad as well for suggesting that I reach out. And of course, thank you for doing this. Um, You know, there is a funny story about the last time I saw Dave in person. Did he tell you what happened? No. I passed out in front of him. He didn't tell you? what what caused you to pass out all right well because, this is a, a strange because... this is about five years ago i think my wife and i went to london and we were with my uh dad there and we went to see dave play a show in i think kilburn and it was at the yep. sort of the tail end of the of carnival week carnival yes. carnival uh <laughs> so we're sit we're watching dave play winston might have been there as well and um my dad pointed out a guy in the uh, pub uh, who looked like the artful Dodger if he was about 60, 60 years old, big stovetop hat and a long morning coat and a big gnarly cane and a, about a thousand rings on his fingers. And uh, my dad said, that's the weed dealer for Kilburn. <laughs> I thought to myself. And I took an opportunity to go outside and have a cigarette I was smoking, I guess, at the
2: time. <laughs> Stop right there! Stop right there! I went outside. I, you went strictly from the weed dealer to going outside and having a cigarette. Okay, I'm just putting this.
0: <laughs> and now... <laughs> if you're getting the picture, so he would, but this is a little while later. So I, I went outside, maybe a few minutes later, twenty minutes later or so, and he was outside. This guy, and he was rolling a spliff, or he was about to start spark up a spliff. So I went over to the guy cause I'm an idiot and I said, and I'll just talk to anybody. And I said, uh, I said, Hey, I said, uh, is that what I think it is? And he went, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Los Angeles where that shit is legal. And he went, <laughs> all right. And he passed it <laughs> over to me and I took a drag on it. I said, cheers. And then, uh, My dad came out of the pub. My wife came out of the pub. Dave came out of the pub and we're all talking, you know, in in the four of us standing and talking and this whatever I smoked. (laughs) I think it was what they call a Jeffrey. This thing started to percolate up into my, you know, I could feel it rising up into the top of my head and they're going on and on. And it was, they were talking about at one point they talked about you. You were uh, Dave, I think was talking, you were going to do something with Dominic West in Edinburgh and it became a little overwhelming. And I, uh, essentially passed out and woke up. I was on the ground All, all to say that I ended up, I was on the ground, uh, in a cold sweat. My, my glasses had fallen off of my had were somewhere else on the bricks. And, um, You know i just i didn't know what had happened and my i just remember my dad saying claudia you just humped that sandwich board and fell over (laughs) that's the last time i saw dave (laughs) we've 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 spoken since a few times but i learned a good lesson that time um now you you have changed your name uh because of course dave's last name is clark you made clark your first name and you made your first name Peter, your last name, Peters, correct? Yes. Yep. And okay, so let me ask you a question out of Shakespeare. What what's in a name, Mr. Peters? What's in a name?
2: <laughs> a job.
0: <laughs>
2: a job is in a name, you know. You know, it's 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 interesting because I've, um, I've I've often turned o- over turned over this a, a number of times. The reason I had to change my name around was because there were too many Peter Clarks in the in the union. Yeah, but uh, there was an actor named Brock Peters, who was uh, um, who was a wonderful actor. So I didn't mind the Peters putting an S at the end of that. And Clark, you know, is the Clark. Um, but also, you know, when I when I look at when you say what's in a name, the name Clark is a Scottish is a, is a, is part of a Scottish clan of which my grandfather was the bastard son of in in barbados interesting okay um but a clerk is a is is the one who writes is a clerk or a clerk or a cleric right so i figure well i, I sometimes i do document what's happening on in life like a clerk Peter's from petra which is a stone i'd like to put those things in stone so I think that Clark Peters is the one that puts thing that puts your history in stone, so that you will always remember where it is.
0: Oh my! That's God. what's in the name. My good heavens, that was just outstanding! How fabulous! You did. You did ask. That's a good. That was a. That was a, a silly question and a great answer. I wanted to go on to ask you. Do you think? That uh, having a name like that is, uh, or or having changed your name, do you think the name change is helpful for someone who's interested in turning into other people for a living?
2: Um, I don't know if it's helpful, but I can tell you, it sometimes it's disconcerting. Um, but I yes, I I guess I uh, I've heard people say here yes that that's a good name you know um to to have the name Clark. You know, because they go to Clark Gable and, you know, Clark Kent and all that kind of stuff. You know, so um, being in this culture, yes, it has, it has served me well. When I when I took when I uh, changed it around, I, I just didn't want to lose, lose my identity. Totally. Mm, OK. You know, and and uh, and, um, and on the form, the first name, your family name was first. And that's really where it came from. Clark Peter. Clark Peters. Put the S on it. You know, that's really where it, where it came from. Uh, um, for for equity, but I do think that yes, some that I, I think that some names uh, uh, work well for uh, um, um, for for some actors, very much so.
0: And I guess I'm asking also that I think th- this idea that you know they say this about actors that act or this difference between being an actor and being a comic, a stand-up, which is that actors want to be anybody but themselves, and mm. a comic only wants to be themselves. Does that resonate?
2: (laughs) That's interesting. I've never heard that before, you know,
0: Um,
2: but then I've always wanted to be a comic, too. (laughs) (laughs) Me, too.
0: I've wanted to do both. Yeah. And have done. Um, So uh, let me see here. So I was curious about your training. Did you do one of these big grad school programs? Did you do the NYU, the Yale, the Juilliard or did you No,
2: no. I was, accept, I was accepted. I was accepted to to Juilliard to go to Juilliard in uh, seven, in in yes in the spring of seventy.
0: What was that audition like? Do you remember?
2: Well, it was actually through a woman named Anna Sokolow, and I was doing a dance class and a, a dance movement class with her. And in that class, there was um, David Ogden Stiers.
0: Oh yeah, from yes. from uh, Mash.
2: Yes, yes, and 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 he was pretty much instrumental in getting me an interview with um, um oh somebody over over at um over at Juilliard. Um, I was to come on back for an audition in that fall, but that summer, that was the summer that I was arrested. Hmm. And I, and I came, and it was too late for me to to come into the uh, uh, into the spectrum or or the. Um, the school in, in that September so it would have been the following the following term coming in midterm like February or March or something like that so you were pro- you
0: time. had been protesting and then that arrest happened did you then take an opportunity to go to London to escape what was going on in the United States no I or took to, to, to Paris to go, I think
2: I took an opportunity to go visit my brother yes you know and and in visiting my brother I wound up getting a job backstage at Hair, right. and one day he didn't show up, and I went on his place, and that was the beginning of of my working on stage in front of an audience, a mature audience. And so by the time by the time um, it was time for me to come on back here and go and go to school, I was already working. Right. My next job was. Um, I left there and I went to. Where did I go? Yes. I went and did hair in Denmark. I started touring with that with that. So if you're an actor and you want to work and you want to do that, you know, and and you were young and stupid like I was, you know, you take the opportunity as it came and that's exactly what I did.
0: Now, so my, uh, no, go so ahead. My
2: tra- so my training uh, um, was through workshops st- was, was through workshops and through different mentors throughout uh, throughout my career. You know, I'm still training.
0: Uh, aren't we all? Yeah. 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 Um, now, a lot of people around my age know your work from The Wire, uh, created by David Simon. In 2016, Rolling Stone named it the second best TV show of all time after The Sopranos. The Wire showed us a picture of the crack cocaine epidemic in Baltimore, the problems of the war on drugs the cor- uh, and corruptions at all levels of city life. It, would you describe it differently?
2: Yes. I would say, first of all, it was the first show. It wasn't the second best. It was the first. <laughs>
0: right?
2: Yeah. And the reason why I say that is because the Sopranos can only survive in America. Mm. Where the wire can survive anywhere in the world. Because everywhere in the world has the problems that we showed in the wire.
0: Okay. I understand. Yeah. Now, That's all-
2: why. You know, it's number one. And... and and that really that that isn't really me saying that that's just from the responses of people that I've run into from Spain, France, mm-hmm. Italy, Germany, um, Scandinavia and Scotland, London, you know, so um, they don't they don't talk about the, 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 the Sopranos or, the, or, or if they do, you know, they always come around to the wire being something that's far more important in their lives. And that's what the media should be used for.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So that it, Yeah. I see. It translates. It translates yeah. better. It's also significant for introducing audiences to a number of actors who are working now a lot. In addition to you, there was Idris Elba, a very young Michael B. Jordan, Dominic West, Wendell Pierce, Amy Ryan, Michael K. Williams, amongst others. You, of course, played Lester Freeman. With Lester, uh, we warm up to him over the first few episodes. He develops a little bit. Almost it reminded me a little of Michael in um, Godfather. He sort of. Stoic almost it, it, was that intentional on the part of the writers or did they eventually say, Hey, this guy is great. We got to write more for him.
2: I think that that's what they had in mind the whole time. You know, I, I, I I'll tell you honestly, I, I, every time a script showed up, you know, because of the nature of Baltimore, I was not surprised as I would not have been surprised to see a line that went from Hurt to Carver going, oh, man did you hear what happened to Lester you know damn whoever thought he would cop it like that you know, you know um because life is so precarious there I never yeah I never thought it would go on uh, as uh, I was surprised I survived the the um the whole run you know but I think that that's what they had in mind all the time you know I just um I wasn't party to that
0: Now, he was this character, Lester, had been in the pawn shop or the pawn unit for 13 years after being kicked out of homicide for doing what he said was police work. In quotes, Jimmy McNulty refers to him as, quote, natural police. What does that phrase natural police mean to you?
2: Natural police are the police who, who really do protect and serve with no other agenda except to protect you and to serve you. And in the case of Lester, who was based on a man named Stephen Clark, actually, um, he followed the money in order to try to find out where the drugs were coming from. And he followed it all the way to the seat of government in the state of Maryland. Hmm. You know, and then um, he was asked to back down, and, which is what he did. You know? So um, that's real police. That's real police, you know. Um, You don't see. It's not until uh, uh, until like I think the last the last uh, season that you see Lester become real police when he decides, you know, oh, to hell with it, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to do this this way. Yeah. Um, But his 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 methodology um, uh, of of detection, you know, is um, is as well real please just just connect the dots you know listen to what you what's what's being said and connect the dots you know that's how he finds a a string of that that's how he finds um uh barksdale you know that's how he begins to put to put together everything that that they find wind up finding of uh uh oh what's his name uh with the clock oh yeah the next one the next bad guy
0: (laughs) oh yeah it's yeah it's escaping me too yeah. Now Lester tells McNulty at one point they he he says in the uh, early on when they ask you where you want to go don't say anything. What what message about the police do you think the show is making with a comment like that?
2: I think that the uh, that's I think the message is that the institution is in control. The institution is in control and they will do anything they can to make sure you stay in line. Which is why the institution, all the way through all of these murders, you know, all these police have gotten off or not served, right? Because that's their promise back to those policemen as well. Whether the policemen, uh, um, uh, rape a woman, or whether they kill a black man, or kill a, 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 a First Nations person, you know, um, whether they have a a, a, a uh, an accident in a car, you know, um, that's what that that's what that that that's what that refers to, you know. So it's basically shut up and and go along with the program.
0: I want to talk to you a little bit about your prop work on that show, the model building that Lester is doing. He's making tiny furniture. Was that about Lester if he couldn't control? his environment, he could control this little world that he was creating. No, no, (laughs) I'm sorry. I whiffed on that. I thought that for. (laughs) I felt really smart when I came up with that.
2: No, it was it was actually twofold. I thought it was I thought that it was um, part of a backstory that you that you didn't get, which was that Lester was a widower.
0: Mm. Oh, wow.
2: Right. And when I heard that he was a widower um, and still looking after two, two boys, I fabricated that the, um, that the um, furniture was his way to stay in connection with her, that that was actually her hobby. And in order to keep her alive in his life, that's what he did, right? But um, Ed Burns tells me, That it's because when you're doing detective work and when you're studying uh, to be a detective, what the institution does is set up little miniature crime scenes.
0: Hmm.
2: Right. And they set them up for uh, for the students to come in and take a look at a crime scene and try to decipher what went on. So in his mind, there was a it was a carryover from that
0: okay, got it. That's no, that's an, an, an another great choice. I, I, I it was curious to me because you ha- there is a sort of a mirroring in uh the other David Simon series Treme. We see the the character Big Chief that you played is creating this quite elaborate headdress over the course of a number of episodes. And so there's a bit of a mirroring there, and i I wondered. Uh, about this idea that, again, something that Lester says in The Wire, that we're putting something together from scratch, mm-hmm. and I wondered if that was in the writing or if that was an act or something that you had brought to the each or both of these roles, and whether that's well, a bigger could, philosophy about life, perhaps a life in the arts, you're building something from scratch.
2: Well, what it was for, for, for me, for Clark, the actor, um, because they began to, uh, in the second season, there was no, there were no instructions as to what to do with the furniture. It was almost non-existent, you know. So I kept it, I kept bringing it back on in as, uh, um, as, as part of his character.
0: Hmm.
2: But it also served me, what I realized in the first season was that when I'm concentrating on, on, on building those, my attention is, is on everything else around me. So that if the camera is on on a person, you can be seen to be telling a story because you're listening, and you can't just sit there listening idly. So it's uh, a bit of
0: a Meisner
2: yes, precisely technique, precisely the Meisler, activity, precisely. <laughs> yes, and the same thing with uh, with with Big Chief. Now that was part of the uh, part of the uh, um, part of the culture, you know. But I think that in the execution of telling the story you know, the more that I was involved with with some Meisner-esque uh, properties, you know, the, it, uh, the silence, I was able to make the silence speak more than words. Mm. And that's what, that's, what David, uh, that's what David used.
0: Now, I'm not as well versed in Treme, but I do recall Big Chief's son is a great jazz trumpet player. And yet there is this question about whether the son has the New Orleans soul in him as he heads off to make some, make a name for himself in New York City. This resolves itself later when it turns out, in fact, he does or he had the New Orleans soul in him the whole time. So here's another uh, bizarre theory question for you. Um, Is Treme a Wizard of Oz story? It starts in the aftermath of a hurricane, Hurricane Katrina. Wizard of Oz uh, starts during a tornado. The major theme of Wizard of Oz is there's no place like home. Big Chief's son returns home from the Oz that is New York City.
2: That's interesting. That's really interesting. But no. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, See, not I'm, at all. I'm, okay, got it.
0: No 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 red slippers anywhere.
2: No red slippers anywhere, <laughs> and you can't click your heels three times and get back, you know, and not any of that. No, that's my I'm, English double major
0: coming into play there. I need to find other readings and things.
2: <laughs> no, uh, it, it was it was much simpler than that actually. The um, any writer is going to find uh, has got to root their story on people who they know or people in, uh, um, in on real people, you know,
0: mm.
2: chief and. And his son are actually Donald Harrison, the, the sax player, and his father.
0: Mm.
2: Right, uh, Donald Harrison Senior was a big chief, and uh, and you see if you see a picture of him, he looks he probably is Native American Indian. You know? um, the reason why uh, um, the son's story is is actually Donald's story. Who had stepped out from New Orleans and to go to pursue a jazz career, a music career, you know? Um, when he and Terrence Blanchard were kids, you know Terrence Blanchard? I don't. Take a look, take a look, look up that name, Terrence Blanchard. I will. Um, Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison were the young John Coltrane and Miles Davis, right? Um, both out of New Orleans, you know. Um, Terence went out, out in the world and, and, and really because of, of Donald's roots, it doesn't make him any less, uh, uh, of a musician or internationally known. His roots still are in New Orleans and you can still catch him there and always coming on back, you know, um, now a brief history on, on the, on the, on the Indians there. It's the chapter that America has always left out of the books. And that is that the whites didn't just push the Indians away. You know, you'll notice that in American history, you never talk about enslavery and the Indians in the same chapter when it's dealing with the Europeans. Hmm. They always separate that. When in actual fact, there was a strong bond between the enslaved African, the freed African, that the freed African, and the runaway African and the Native American Indians.
0: That's interesting right. because it's come into the nomenclature now, this new uh, uh, term BIPOC Black Indigenous People of Color.
2: Yes. Well, I have right here a book that I was looking at. I can probably show you it. I don't know if this is coming up forward or backwards. Can you see this? I, we can.
0: We, if, yes, we can find this and we can share this with our audience. Yes. Travels in the interior of North America. yeah. A beautiful book.
2: I draw your attention to the picture on the front of it, right That's a water cover color of the Indians that this German prince saw at the time of his coming to America.
0: Hmm.
2: That is the color of their skin. Hmm. It is not the color of the skin that you see of the Lakota people in North Dakota nor the Hollywood Indians that you've seen many, many times. When you hear, um, when you read or hear about the writings of um, Christopher Columbus writing back to Queen Isabella saying what he found, he found copper colored people. Hmm. He didn't find tan people. He didn't find pink people. He found copper-colored people, right? The reason why this prince decided to, to have this uh, have, make this book was because they were being wiped out, and he knew that they, that they would be extinct in a very short space of time. So he took a colorist with him to America to, to, uh, to document and record these people as they were in their natural habitat, with their headdress, as well as their skin tones, Hmm. right? So that nomenclature of, uh, what was it, that black indigenous people of color? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, yes, very much so, you know? And, you know, uh, we're we're trying to pull this notion back, you know, because people think, people actually believe what they read in their history books. (laughs) And why shouldn't they? because the professors who've told them have as well been uh, um, indoctrinated with the same lies. You know, so it's no wonder that this thing is perpetuated uh, down through time. But, you know, the the truth will out.
0: So now to get into a little bit about your theater history, you've been nominated three times for the Olivier Award in London for your work on Unforgettable, Porgy and Bess, and Chicago. You also wrote... The musical review Five Guys Named Mo, which landed you a Tony nomination for Best Book of a Musical, mm-hmm. you've started multiple productions on Broadway, including playing Gloucester in King Lear and Shakespeare in the Park with John Lithgow and Annette Benning. It seems you always want to be where the art to commerce ratio is always heavier. Art is that correct? Well, that works for me.
2: I I, I also think like you know, like with Five Guys, what I realized is that. You could have uh, you could create a piece of uh, theater for the least amount of investment for the greatest return. Mm. You know, uh, so I, I'm, I'm not, uh, um, I'm not ignorant to the, to the, uh, um, to the economy that, that surrounds a, a piece, um, but I, re- I don't want to be seduced away, you know, uh, and have to be chasing the money because of whatever. That does not mean that I don't want to be paid well for what I do. You know. I do. And I've never been paid, uh, you know, anywhere near what my white counterpart gets paid for the very same job and done 10 times worse. You know, but you know, that, that's, that's, that's by the by for now. But, um, I like, I like the craft of storytelling. I love it. I love it to death, you know, and for most actors, if they're, um, for most actors that enjoy acting and storytelling, there's nothing like it. That's the reward. The reward is, is is being able to have the power to manipulate an audience, to bring them to tears, to make them laugh, to inform them, you know, and do that responsibly. You know, that's there's nothing that that uh, that that tops that nothing.
0: And it seems that you've stayed away a, a, a bit from Los Angeles, apparently You had been asked during the filming of The Wire in 2002 that you were told to go to L.A. and you are are quoted as saying L.A. is full of dimwits. Is that do you think that is that still do you believe that to be true about L.A. today? Or do you think that L.A. today is beginning to change a little bit? I I completely agree with you sometimes. (laughs) <laughs> but I, but I've seen some changes in my time out here. I'm also wondering if I did this whole thing wrong, and I should have just stayed in New York and you know just sort of in the scrum until I could get my theater career going. Yes.
2: Um, yeah. You know, it's 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 an industry. It's a machine. You know. Yeah. And you know, um, it just puts out. It, it's it just puts out what it can put out. You know, and it has a certain quota that it's got to meet. You know. There's a certain, mu- certain amount of money that's got to be lost, mm. you, know, you know, in order to keep the books balanced, you know. And in doing so, there's a lot of crap that comes around. I went out there with the intention of staying there for three months, you know, until I got a gig, you know, so I can understand it. And after three weeks, I just thought, this is full of shit.
0: What year was this? Do you remember?
2: It might have been the last year of The Wire, or the year after The Wire finished somewhere around there but the scripts i was getting i, I just
0: yeah i remember uh, that time yeah
2: you know i i wouldn't want you know i, I wouldn't want my children watching half the stuff yeah. that came to me you know and and has it changed i don't know because i ain't been back
0: <laughs> <laughs> i think there's some really interesting stuff going on now but i think it has taken us a while to change the culture out here and i, I don't not that it's changed but I think that it's moving in, in, in a few interesting directions. Now you've been in some Oscar winning and Oscar nominated films. And I, I guess I would say Oscar winning when I talk about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, because mm. it won two, the two lead actors, Oscars. That was written by Martin McDonough, a playwright, also the writer of in Bruges, which is an excellent movie. Yes. <laughs> Phenomenal mm. film. Uh, you were also in Harriet with Cynthia Erivo, who, is, who was nominated for two Oscars for that film. Um, mm-hmm. There was so much I didn't know about Harriet Tubman.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's, and, and there's still a lot more to know. Yeah, you
0: that know, she freed almost every member of her family. She was, you know, one of the few women in the U.S. to lead an arm ex- expedition that she wielded a gun so expertly. She chose to bite a bullet instead of getting anesthesia when she had to have her skull fixed and lifted go ahead you were gonna say i'm so sorry
2: well there's um she was a phenomenal woman you know um suffragettes were part of your know, part of her part of her scene as well uh, that she lived so long to tell those stories which is just just wonderful you know that that there's a generation who were able to hear her voice you mm-hmm. know um but there was you know there's there there's you know it's that it's that it's that whole aspect of American history that that is documented in little pamphlets that are yellowing and, and um, you know that are falling apart that people have to go to to piece together the history of the indigenous people and the enslaved Africans to tell the to tell the American story you know and and I hold that that if you if people had heard of, of uh, Harriet uh, Tubman before now, if they had heard of Harriet Tubman, if Harriet Tubman's story had been part of the curric- historical curriculum mm, you yeah. know, from, from time, from, you know, from, from the 30s, you know, um, we would have a different America. You know? if, yeah. uh, if, if you knew about Frederick Douglass before then, if you knew about the Native mm. American Indians who were congressmen, before that, after the uh, during Reconstruction, we would have a different America. That's the ideal that that, uh, um, that that we're trying to get to. That's the ideal that that someone along the line could see the potential of. You know that has been undermined and thwarted ever since. You know simply because you have a a populace that is uninformed as to who they are.
0: If they understand who they right. are,
2: they will realize how they can arrive at this land of the free and the brave.
0: That's right, and she is supposed to be gracing our twenty dollars bills as of this year. And do you think that's going to happen? No, the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin punted on that, and decided to delay it indefinitely, which is an absolute shame. Absolute shame.
2: Yes, you know. So you know, how much power do how much power do people have?
0: <laughs> you know, maybe we'll find I'm... out. I hope. You know, it's um. We'll see yeah, come
2: November. Yeah, it's just it's, it's, it's disheartening. Yes, I, I, I hope something changes in November. I really do. Yeah.
0: Now, up next, you're in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, starring yourself, Delroy Lindo, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., another Wire alum, and Chadwick Boseman, amongst others. the The story tagline is four veterans returning to Vietnam in search of the remains of their fallen squad leader and the promise of buried gold these heroes battle forces of humanity and nature while being confronted by the lasting ravages of the immorality of the Vietnam War now we spoke a little bit about your history of protest uh, during those Vietnam years one of the posters for defy bloods features a fist in a uniform with the tag our fight is not in Vietnam uh, was that in part what you were protesting those years ago and you're nodding to say I, to agree. The film also features footage of the famous Kent State protests, the Nixon's re- resignation. Could the release of this movie be better timed than the current well, situation that we're in?
2: There's um. There's an entity called God <laughs> that has a way of influencing the ways that influences the changes on the earth, you know? And if we're lucky enough or perceptive enough, we will see the ha- that hand writing things and putting things in place for a particular end. And I think that this couldn't have come sooner. This couldn't have been yeah. orchestrated or written or created by anyone else. This is a worldwide event. You know, the protests are worldwide.
0: Netflix, on the 12th, is releasing this worldwide. June 12th, ladies and gentlemen. Well, this will come, this will air after that, but people, I'm sure people will see it. I'm sure everyone will see it.
2: And and, and also, let me say that, the one name that you forgot was Norm Lewis. Norm Lewis is also. Broadway a- actor. Yes. Yeah.
0: Correct? Yes. Norm, Wonderful you know, actor.
2: Yes. Broadway Norm. He was also, he's he's our fourth blood. Yes, indeed.
0: I'm very excited. I'm very excited to see it. Now, this is the second movie that you've done with Spike Lee. Is that correct? The second? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and I know you're in the middle of a press junket. These are questions you've been getting a lot right now. Let me just ask, how did you and Spike Lee come to know each other? How did that relationship start?
2: It happened through his brother,
0: David. And
2: David was is, was a photographer on the set of uh, the first season of The Wire. Of the Wire yes. Um, and when I found out that, uh, that he was Spike's brother, I said, uh, tell your brother I want to work with him.
0: Good and for then
2: you. Then at the opening of, the, uh, of that first season, the premiere of that first season, I saw Spike. I introduced myself to him, and I said, I want to work with you. And his response to me was, that's all right. You're on my radar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What, a, what better a sentence I cannot imagine. Wow. Well, this uh, Mr. Peters, this has been a huge honor for me. Uh, you are a treasure trove and a talent beyond compare. Uh, I remember when I put two and two together that you were Dave's brother and I was blown away. Uh, I I never envisioned I'd get a chance to meet, let alone chop it up with you about this thing that we all love, the performing arts. Um, Thank you for blessing this series with your insights into all things art, politics, and life. I wish you and your family uh, health, safety, and continued prosperity. And should we say together, no justice, no peace? No, no justice, no, justice, no peace. peace. Amen. Thank
2: you so much. Thank you very much.
0: Well, there you have it. My interview with Clark Peters back in June of this year. A big thank you to Mr. Peters for his graciousness and his time. I think we covered a lot of meaningful ground. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview today, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. We've got more incredible interviews with folks like Melissa Fumero, Baron Vaughn, Chantal Tui, Writer Doyle, and Sarah Paxton coming in the next few weeks. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five-star ratings, leave us a nice comment, and we'll keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Della Saba, an Actors Gang company member and the voice of young Judy Hopps in Disney's Zootopia. It's a wonderful conversation about theater and craft. We talk about voiceover work, theater styles, actor training, and identity. It's a lovely chat. Here now is me talking with my friend, Della. Um, now, you and I have a few things in common. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought we could talk about them. Uh, first of all, we went to the same conservatory program, Stella Adler. Yep. Now, did you go via NYU or did you do just the conservatory?
3: I just did the conservatory,
0: which and is even did, more involved. You did NYU, right? Beg pardon?
3: Well, you threw NYU.
0: Yeah. Cool. Now I did two years there. Um, I think you did three. Correct?
3: Mine was the last year that was two and a half.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Did you like it?
3: Uh yes, and I, I really liked it. I liked that all the people that I've met, I, I sometimes wonder, I sometimes think I was a little bit too young to jump straight into that. Mm. I think I took a lot of what we were taught as like God's word, like very seriously. And I think I've had to undo some of the learning that I took so seriously there.
0: Interesting. Uh um, like yeah. anything that, anything that's occurring to you at the moment?
3: Um, I think, do you know what? I, I just, I think a lot of you know where I think they do it particularly in America, where they sort of comment on things about yourself as well as the character, or as lo- well as a script interpretation. They're sort of making assessments about you as a person at the same time. Yeah. Um. I feel like that to me was a little unhelpful. I took it very personally, and I think in hindsight it sort of took out a bit of the fun. Um. And I feel like a lot of what I'm a lot of what I'm working on now is is sort of not feeling. Uh, contained by those rules of like who they told me I was or how I had to be. I'm, yeah.
0: That, yeah, that's very interesting. Particularly because Adler, the Adler approach is supposed to be a little bit hands off when it comes to your own personal shit.
3: Right. Yeah. It's supposed to be much more imagination based. And that's yeah. honestly where I have fun with everything. Um, is much more in the sort of visual imagination sort of out, that that kind of sense of play yeah but I think that's why in some ways I actually don't know if it was the training or it was just me being 18 new in a city having just moved there that I sort of um some of the things I think of as just because I'm small a lot of the things would be sort of like you can never be cute or you can never like speak serious uh you know use your grounded voice hold your body straight you know these kind of things that i took as like holy grail and you know now i'm you know do voiceover for cartoons and things like that and i think there was a while where i was holding on as if this was like not acting or something
0: well like i don't I was understand what wrong. you mean your rounded voice and your what what are these things that you're referring to
3: <laughs> do you know what i'm talking about no. okay like like um i feel like a lot of what we're learning was technique, right? Yeah. And I remember, we. so we have one teacher who I feel like everyone references, like like Jimmy Tripp.
0: Oh, yeah, sure. And Jimmy, yeah. for
3: a while, because my voice, the way I spoke, I would kind of talk like, oh, hey, Jimmy, like kind of like up here. And um, I remember one time him sort of tearing my voice apart. And for a while, he wouldn't let me talk unless... Unless I spoke on a grounded voice. But when you're eighteen and really wanting to fit in, I was like, Oh my god, my voice must be awful if he never yeah. wants to hear me talk. Yeah. And then I moved to LA and then voiceover was the only thing I could book. So oh my god. it's it's two different things. Oh, you have but such a great that...
0: you have such a great vocal instrument. We'll talk about it. But um yeah, Jimmy had a way of I do remember at one point Jimmy saying, um, let's be clear that he is a, a an absolutely extraordinary teacher
3: he's amazing that's why i think everyone talks about him so much yeah but and it was theatrics which i think in hindsight i see the funny side of it but when you're 18 you don't see it. Well, i didn't see it that he wasn't just trying to like tear me apart and that was my acting career over before i'd already started
0: we've talked i've talked with other actors on here about when you're in school there is this kind of a breaking down process that happens Mm -hmm. It, it tends to exist with almost every acting studio i think with with jimmy i think what was interesting is occasionally like he i remember him saying to us so the adler approach is um one of the aspects of it is this idea of using dramatic actions which are sort of verbs that describe what you're doing to the other person in order to get what your character wants out of a scene they call them actions another way to think about them are like tactics or strategies hopefully most people listening to this know this but if you don't that's okay and that that's this is what it is but i do remember what Jimmy saying to us one day like actions are for amateurs you know (laughs) which is funny because yes like i guess if you're a pro you know to be doing your actions so i guess maybe don't be think you don't need to think about them all the time Mm -hmm. anymore but um when you are a student it's quite important to be rigorously doing them so i feel like jimmy would have a comment every once in a while that would just be like fuck this or fuck that like because he was because he's awesome he's a rock star teacher and
3: totally
0: yeah for sure
3: it's so funny because I think I'm only just kind of grasping the concept of actions now. Um, I, I I was a late learner on that.
0: <laughs> they're so, you know, and I, I think they're a thing that people get very, I tend to f- feel like, I, I know I do get lazy about them. And my uh-huh. wife also uh-huh. went to, through the Adler program, and she mm-hmm. has reminded me, you know, so if I'm running something with her, she'll say, you're not really doing anything. And I was talking to... Um, Melissa Fumero the other day about we, we we had a teacher at another studio cap 21 who used to who accused both of us in different ways, not accused, but pointed out correctly mm-hmm. that we were being kind of general in our work. So mm-hmm. this is what tends to happen is like you get an audition and you get a general sometimes I think we get a general vibe from the scene like oh they're upset
1: mm-hmm. or they're scared.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you try you paint the whole scene with that one color, but of course, in real life that's not how we are we in one moment we're shocked and then immediately aggressive and or sad and there are many colors and the actions uh, tend to help us right navigate the the, the the so that the scene ends up being more dynamic i think that's what stella means when she says the talent is in your choice in
3: your choice yeah exactly exactly
0: yeah um well okay so I wanted to, so you were raised in the UK. Yeah. Were you born
3: there? Uh, yeah, I was born in London. Me too. Wait, I think I did know that. I know because I, I know the next thing is going on too that we have in common, but I thought, I forgot that you're born in London too.
0: I, I was born in the city of Westminster.
3: Oh, I was, I don't Where was I born? I grew up in like West London.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was I ra- I was I was raised there on and off throughout my life. Um, I was there for high school. Where did you go? The American school.
3: Oh, I always used to see the kids from the American school. I th- oh, no, wait. Maybe I'm thinking of the French say, because they always had American, a lot of the kids that had the American accents. But maybe it was the American school. Where was it? It was in Westminster.
0: It was in St. John's Wood.
3: Oh, my dad used to live around there.
0: Oh, yeah? Yeah.
3: Another thing we haven't got. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, um, yeah, I, you know, it was it was great being able to see the theater that I saw when I was there, you know? Yeah. It's nice that they have subsidized theater and you mm-hmm. can get student tickets. I mean, I used to go after school. It was either you'd go to the pub in high school or... Yeah. Yeah. Or you'd go like I would just go by myself and see theater, um, and I saw, you know, amazing people at the National Theatre or wherever for for what was I think at the time it was like fifteen quid.
3: You could even I remember a time when they even did five pound tickets wow. to go. You could stand at the back. I they make it so accessible. It's I I don't know if they I'm I think it's the same still. I haven't lived there for a while, but yeah, it it's it's definitely makes such a difference with the affordability of everything. It's the same. When I go see my friends, we'd be more likely to go to the theater than the cinema because it's actually cheaper sometimes. Yeah. Which just changes, yeah, the medium. And also what theater I think can be about because it also, there's a younger audience there. So I I think it can have a more of a changing voice, more of a contemporary voice, um, have a more immediacy maybe because people are going all the time.
0: Yeah. You know, there was this letter that was signed by 300 theater artists uh, uh, addressing the white American theater Mm -hmm. and talking about um, a number of a range of issues uh, that that deal with systemic racism in the theater in the United States. And of course, racism. We've also had this I've had this discussion with um, somebody on this uh, podcast about racism in the U.K., Mm. and anti-black racism um mm-hmm. but in the uk th- it, this also exists one of the things in the uk theater but you know the that thing about being able to go to see the theater for not what would cost you this price of an airline seat
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: That's, that's a big deal
3: it's it's a huge deal i think about it here in la even just you know most i want to go support all my friends theatre, but it's 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 still most places is about thirty-five dollars
1: yeah. to
3: and the thing with theatre is theatre when it's good is amazing and transformative. Theater when it's average is is like that's that's a gamble on thirty-five dollars. <laughs> but I hear you on the like the uh uh the because I'm part of a theatre company here and we've been talking yeah. a lot about um yeah, I guess the uh, it exists in England too, but the the racism in within the the theatre companies, our theatre company, we've had a lot of conversations about it. But yeah, it definitely is having a lot of chats about how to ch- to change, make change within it, because there is a structure that that does definitely benefit, um, even in terms of the stories that are picked. It's definitely got a, a white lens on it, I think.
0: Right. And if you're serving a white, primarily white audience who can afford the tickets, that becomes a major part of the problem.
3: Totally. And the, actually, our theater company, they do do a Thursday night, which is pay what you can, which it changes the who the audience is, changes the theater so entirely. And it's often plays as well. I've written, I don't know, to be it's It's part of the performance is who's in your audience as well, mm. and it's it's really i I've really been thinking about that a lot, just in terms of yeah, the the age, the where people are from, what race is it's, it's going people are going to respond to things in different ways, and that's so important to be part of the storytelling it, it, you know that medium in particular is is a an exchange of audience and actor at the same time.
0: It absolutely is. Yeah. And now let's, yeah. I, so I was going to ask you about your theater company. We should talk about it. You, so you're an ensemble member. Is that a, a yeah. do, are there different, yeah, you're an ensemble member of the. So the
3: whole theater company, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's an ensemble based theater company. It, we do pre- predominantly ensemble theater.
0: So this is the Actors Gang, which was started by Tim Robbins here in LA. Yeah. Some of the alumni include Helen Hunt and Kate Walsh, John Cusack, John C. Riley. Jack Black and Kyle Gass from Tenacious D. Mm-hmm. Um, now I know I and have worked with Shira Piven, who is a, a film director, and she's all she also is you know I mean she's very close with a number of the people in the that company, and that she's worked mm-hmm. with them. Uh, I've taken class with her. It was a Comedia based uh, class, um, and that's sort of w- typically what the company. Does right is it Commedia Theater in primarily or is that just one of the or is it other things like viewpoints as well? Viewpoint
3: we do viewpointing too. It's definitely rooted. So if you're because you start with the training through to get into the company, that is based in in Commedia, and they do mask work and they do uh, and and we do viewpointing. So that's also where the ensemble comes in. Which speaking of like even just storytelling through a certain lens a a white perspective you know commedia we've even been talking about that in the company because it is set up in this sort of it's set up with a class and a hierarchy um but it yeah is it it, i didn't
0: so within commit because i was about to say oh it's more translatable because it's mask work but no you're saying there's actually a hierarchy within it
3: i mean i i would i am no expert on it so totally you know this is through my lens, I, I think in terms of the exploration we do within the characters. Now, I'm not saying it has to be appointed to a significant, like, to, uh, specifically to, to race. But I do think that we are sort of looking at these archetypes of, you know, the, the, the rich man and his wife in the house. And then the servant who, oh, who, who um has to do everything they say and then there, there's these there's i mean it's, it's set up it's in every storytelling right shakespeare was inspired by this and um uh but it's set up in a way that i i think if you're telling stories through it, it can fall in because it's archetype right that's so what it i was can gonna fall ask into so... archety- and when you're looking at archetype you only look at archetype through the broad lens that you have been exposed to archetype so archetype exists
0: this actually was even before uh the writing of chekhov was this archetype kind of character writing where you would have in a given story a king a queen a a a a, a soldier a, a fool yeah a servant so and then the and the and the dialogue was quite representational right it was you would say exactly what you mean Right? I love you as I love you. There's no subtext, right?
3: Totally. And with that, I think also Commedia is based on street theatre as well. So I think it's... Or it comes from... So you're breaking the fourth wall a lot of the time. You're looking Uh. people in the eyes because you're trying to... I guess it came from people... I really hope I'm not butchering the history of this, but like, this is what I've been told. Um, (laughs) Isn't that what's fun about
0: a podcast is we can just talk straight from our ass.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Guys, go and fact check everything I say. (laughs) Um, But I think like it is supposed to be that if you're doing street theater, you're trying to catch people's eyes. You don't want them to walk away, Mm -hmm. right? So you've got to look them in the eyes and perform. Yeah. And, And to make Clear. It's not that I think as I mentioned saying that I think that speaking of archetype it can play into things that we're trying to right now rightly so having discussions about trying to break it's not that those characters are written in a certain way it's just I think there is a when you're it's it all adds up to everything we're exposed to right or everything it, it can very easily fall into patterns that probably aren't helpful.
0: Right, that, that map furthering. onto a colonial sort of, yeah, so, yeah, pre- previous and current societies. Yeah. Oh my god, I hope that we come off sounding smart about that stuff, but I, I have no idea. I think Can that, you- I think that tracks. But it's certainly a certainly a good time for conversation. It is a very prestigious theater company. How was the uh, that you you're a part of? So how, could you talk a little bit about like what was the audition process for that?
3: Uh, that audition process, you go in, uh, let me remember. Oh, you do viewpointing, and then they work, so they sort of... Um...
0: Could you tell folks a little bit about what viewpointing is? Because that's also a little bit, like, upper-level acting stuff.
3: Yeah, so viewpointing, it's so funny, because I only know it through what we do, so I don't know the broad, like, thing, but what we tend to do is, it's it's movement-based theater based on it's almost okay the way i see it is when you know when birds flock they're just flying and suddenly they all fly in the same direction but there's like this ephemeral energy they're receiving that makes them go change direction we sort of work in that so you'll start with a movement what one company member and we'll all sort of just with your peripheral vision you'll start to receive what they're they're doing And through that, it sort of turns into this display. There are certain rules we have. We work through four emotions, um, happy, sad, afraid, or angry. So you team that with this movement. It becomes very expressive. Through that, we then add improvisation. That's an added thing from viewpointing, but we then will start to talk through, let's say I have a behavioral gesture. You can't see me. But uh, like whatever I'm doing will then uh, inform me of, what I'm going to say, and then we've already talked about the archetypes, but I'll, I'll then within that form, that's sort of where a story comes through. Yeah. Does that make sense? I, I it makes sense to me. Do, I don't know yeah. if it
0: makes sense to everybody. Let's talk, like, <laughs> what's an example of a behavioral gesture, since we can see each other, but the audience can't, okay. so.
3: So, like, if I was a, a person who always scratched my nose, like, every time I got sort of, um, I, I'm doing it, no one can see me again, but, like, it if a behavioral gesture would be like scratching your nose or maybe you like fidget with your hands all the time, or maybe you always scratch the side of your neck or play with your earlobe or something. I think all all humans uh, have a whole load of mannerisms and we're sort of honing in on one to create character.
0: Yeah. That, or that it could be a, a, a potential starting place or a hook. Into, yeah. 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 I think that uh yeah that's a great explanation of that I um so um so that was what you had to do for the audition it was sort of jump in with with a group was it a group audition
3: with with a group of people and then you work through sort of two years of of being like an intern kind of vibe person at the company but you were allowed to be in the shows and stuff And, and 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 then and then you're in the company and they also encourage you have to do uh volunteer work with it okay it's like a volunteer system like
0: like the old apprentice system which a lot of theaters employ
3: yeah and but with ours actually you can either help out like with the theater with the maintenance or our our the actors gang works it has a few programs like the prison project or they teach kids um uh theater and so you can kind of get slotted into different Things depending on your skill set.
0: Now I've heard about the the prison project and it sounds like an extraordinary project that this company does. Do you want to talk a little, did you get an opportunity to participate in that one or not?
3: not? I've literally, I'm probably not the right person. I think it's amazing. and would want to further get to be part of it more. I literally have been the person who's like, clean the makeup that goes to the prisons. And I've only been to just, I've only seen one performance um, that was done um, so I'm probably not the best to, to talk about it, but I, I do know that it's basically they use the same stuff that we we teach the same thing to everyone. If it's to kids or if it's to inmates, um, it's it's the four emotions, which is great because it's very expressive and it's very releasing um, and the same cat archetypes. And um, uh, you take classes through that. And uh, I know it's been very, very successful t- in terms of um getting people to sort of unlock themselves and have a chance to, uh, uh, yeah.
0: Have a, have a cathartic Release. experience.
3: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So it, I did see that you also did an intensive, did you do a, a full year at Lambda, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art? No,
3: I just did, uh, the summer program there. I so did, I did one was, of
0: those. Yeah. Did you do...
3: Did same again
0: yeah i know yeah we have a lot in common do, <laughs> did you do the? was it the shakespeare certificate
1: yeah, yeah. i did
0: that yeah i thought did it was like good it? i mean i
1: <laughs> I, I, like I don't
0: think too. i still to this day i don't think i've done a full shakespeare have you done a full shakespeare
3: i've done midsummer night's dream at stellar adler that's it
0: yeah I'd love to. That's I'm ready it. now to try it.
3: I am too. Do you know? I think again. I think I only get it now. Like the other day, at actors gang, we had to on Zoom do Shakespeare monologues, and I was like, "Oh, like now I can play all the kids' roles, <laughs> like <laughs> the younger women." But like, I, I, it's, 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 it's funny because I think yeah, you learn it. <sighs> I, I feel like I was taught it with so many rules as well, and mm. now I'm older it doesn't feel so important to stick to
0: that well the pentameter the iambic pentameter Uh thing is a is is tough it's tough to but in terms of like decoding the language and understanding what is being said i mean if you understand if you're uh familiar with the the sort of the the cockney language at all it's Mm -hmm. then i think you get a better sense of like what you know shakespeare like in, in, uh, like a Cockney expression might be like getting in a lot of, please correct me if I get this wrong, but it's like if you get in, um, a bunch of Barney, the full, it's Barney rubble, tr- equal, equaling trouble. So you get, you're getting yeah. in trouble. If you're going up the apples and pears, you're going up the stairs. Yeah. So, so with Shakespeare, it's not exactly that, but the language is playful in that way. Is Would you agree?
3: Super, super yeah, super. Yeah, exactly, super imagery e, and um, and I think, though, do you know what, though, is I sometimes, okay, I am, my, this might be going I sometimes think, though, that, like, because that, I always read the blurb that tells me what it says, but that's just, like, one person's opinion, isn't it? Sometimes I'm like, I think people just really, s- sometimes I think people actually know less of what it means than it actually means, but I think mm-hmm. that's okay like okay like when i when i read when i read um shakespeare i don't always know what it's saying and then i'll look up the blurb and it's like this is what it's saying but i sometimes feel like you can kind of make up what it's saying and as long as you know what it's saying it's like your own secret language so it's almost like the cockney rhyming slang only in some ways you can if it's to, if it's playing something on your partner it doesn't really matter what it means right well maybe that's what my freedom has come and maybe it's not right but I, I i feel like there is something to to it almost being any up to anyone's interpretation
0: well if you yeah i think so and particularly with our modern lens on acting and mm-hmm. particularly the influence of sort of american styles or or we say american but it's really russian it's really this stanislavski mm. i think uh system which we've adopted and um but the stanislavski system was was allowing for the subtext that was written into th- things like the chekhov plays where if you said to somebody you know i love you could could mean a number of things it could mean goodbye it could mean it could be just a bald-faced lie um depending on the interpretation of what you think the character means when they say so if you do apply that to shakespeare shakespeare um (laughs) i think that I i think that you're i don't i don't think he'd be mad well i don't know he probably would be mad he wrote a whole speech into hamlet about like actors don't do a don't wave your arms don't like so he, he might hate it. What I loved, though, was, like, when that, in that Lambda program, did you get Christine Ozan talking about the scrolls?
3: Ah uh, shit, what was she, am I allowed to swear? What did yeah. she say?
0: She Yes, you are. Yes. She you she t- explained about how you would get a, just as the actor, you'd only get your lines that were, like, toilet paper oh, around a little, yeah. like, a rolling pin. Oh, yeah, like
3: in a Dream. Oh, no, you're talking about scrolls. Yes. Okay. Yeah. OK,
0: because he because Shakespeare didn't trust the actors, I guess, to do much work at all. Like he just he wrote it in such a way that one actor would come out and say his line and another actor would come out and say his. Yes, his. Both his. His line. And <laughs> it would be the setup and punchline to the joke. And that's all you you know, like it was all in the writing, I guess.
3: Do you think it made people really good at listening because you just are like, well, where is my cue? When is it coming?
0: Well, if you it probably
3: at- help with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at that Ben Affleck character from Shakespeare in Love, when he shows up and he does that, do you know this? You remember the scene where he like arrives and he's like, he's—I can't even remember the lines—but he's just booming out lines in the little Globe Theater. There, it occurred to Uh, me that like uh, this is what the kind of actor that that would have been the sought after at the time is just somebody who had a big voice, mm, stood well, good posture, and said the (laughs) shit.
3: Totally, totally. I mean, that brings us back to what Jimmy was trying to tell me. Like, have a big voice, stand still.
0: <laughs> have a big voice and stand the fuck still. So funny. Um, okay, so the other thing, the, 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 the other sort of bigger thing that we have in common is that we are both half Middle Eastern. Yeah. And we actually collaborated on a, a comedy show featuring Middle Eastern comedians. You were so kind to do our beautiful posters because you're a very talented illustrator. And while yeah. we're on this real quick, where where can folks go to check out your drawings and buy your zine?
3: Oh, yeah. On my website, I have my zine. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, on my website, which is dot sabacom But I haven't been posting on Instagram as much, but it's going to be Coming. I took a little pause, but I've still been drawing.
0: You're incredibly talented at it.
3: Thank you.
0: Now, okay, so just back to our shared heritage. Do you, so do you find, are you, because you're other, you're, you're half Middle Eastern and you're half, or well, I should be more specific. You're half Lebanese, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And half Polish, is that right?
3: So my mom is, yeah, her side of the family is is Polish Jewish. Okay. So, but, but my mom was born in England. So. Um, whatever that you know, but so, but yeah, so that's her side of the family, and then my dad's side of the family is Lebanese.
0: Yeah, okay, and my so mine is I'm half Jordanian and I'm half Irish. Yeah, um, so we got
3: actually it's just not really that similar, but it's kind of similar.
0: Yeah, well, I've done because I'm adopted. I have looked into mm. some of my twenty three andMe stuff, and you know, when you're adopted, it's sort of like anything that is a potentially part of your not potentially that is part of your identity it becomes very important to you because you don't have the same you don't have the thing that other people have which is that they really know where they're from you know who you know there there are certain things so so I for adopted people my sister's also adopted she's half Persian mm-hmm. and half Irish co- by coincidence oh. not so much by coincidence the adoption agency reached out to our parents and we're like we think we found a playmate for your son. Which is weird. <laughs> um that, yeah, that's, lot, so,
3: that's amazing.
0: Yeah. So in a, I did get back some some results and actually so my Middle Eastern side is a is a full fifty percent and mm-hmm. the but it's somewhat Lebanese like there's it's a it's more Lebanese than it is and Syrian. There's some Lebanese oh. and some Syrian and Jordanian in my that half. So close, close ish what I wanted to ask you was, um, so do you feel or find rather that you're commonly identified as Middle Eastern? Cause it's a weird thing to be in our particular industry.
3: It's when you're talking about, cause I can't even imagine what it must be to like, hold on to identity when you're adopted. Like that feels like that what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I, I can say even without that, I always feel a little like awkward, Yeah, <laughs> just like that mixed thing is, is, I never know how that exactly. That, I mean, that's maybe. The, I never know how someone is viewing what what they think. I, I'll say in America because of my accent, people tend to just jump to English. But then the next question is usually like, "Where are you from?" Um, I I I always feel like Middle Eastern people immediately know I'm Middle Eastern. That's hmm, that. Interesting. They'll always be like, "Oh, you're from the Middle East." And I'm like, "Yay, you got it." Um, but uh, I. Yeah, I, I I get a whole load of different guesses.
0: Hollywood has a has a difficult issue with Middle Eastern people. We are the least represented, I think.
3: It's a, can I just say going back to the comedy thing you were talking about? When I the comedy the thing that you set up, yeah, that we did amazing a show, evening, yeah. I was so happy when I was there. I was smiling the whole time, and I called my sister later. As like, Nicole, there are more people like, us. like, yeah. like I'd never sat in a room where people were talking about just that so in between experience, and yeah. that again, it's like what so many pe- more and more people are gonna have, which is that mixed kind of culture or kids of immigrants or whatever it is. It's it's it it sits so awkwardly in terms of the way our world likes to assess people.
0: Right, completely. Well, it was nice to have community together that night. We we were able to do that show twice. You know, we were planning on doing it annually in this year, but right now it's tricky. So we'll we'll just have to wait maybe until this crisis is health crisis is over to do it again. Mm -hmm. But anytime you show up in in a public space with other folks who are Middle Eastern, it feels incredibly empowering.
3: It really does. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Uh, I have that also when I go home to see my family, and not home le- to Lebanon to see my family. Just the whole time, uh, yeah, it's 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 cool. It's cool.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna go on here and ask you a little bit about um, your um, your really big. Um, sorry, that sounds weird. You you have a great <laughs> career in voiceover and animation. Um, You you voiced young Judy Hopps in Disney's Oscar-winning film Zootopia, which of all the movies that my kids watch, that one is one of my absolute favorites.
3: Ah, yay! That's awesome. And every time we
0: watch it, I love hearing your voice doing the character. (laughs) I love that movie. I think that's one of those movies that does a pretty good job of speaking uh towards social issues uh, while at the same time being very entertaining do you you feel that way
3: i totally feel that way i wonder like uh, you know i'd love to hear other people's in, in our two people podcast i'd love to hear more people's perspective on it but like no i feel like for the time when it came out i definitely felt like uh Yeah. I mean, I, it's the writer, Phil Johnston. I, well, there's a few writers, but I know that his stuff, he also did Wreck-It Ralph. I feel like he has a great way of really addressing adults, like adult things and putting them into kids' storytelling. And I think he does it well. I don't think he's scared to go like a little darker, a little deeper. And I, I, I like that. I think that's why actually a lot of adults respond to it.
0: Yeah. And the jokes that are subtle for the adults are, are, are so sharp. Um, I, I really love that movie. Um, so people talk about voiceover as being very hard to break into, um, and ve- but very lucrative. So how did you break into that world initially? Um, and do you have any advice for folks who want to do it?
3: Um. Oh. Okay. I broke in very randomly. Uh, I got introduced to one person who worked at Disney, and then. You know when you're like, hey, I don't have an agent. Does someone want to sign me? And the only person who actually like let me, you know, come and meet them <laughs> was uh, Jamie Roberts, who was amazing. Who's the casting director at Disney? And I had this interview with her. It was one of my early ones, and um, they were looking for someone to do. So this is actually the advice I would give too. They were looking for someone to do scratch work, which is when you're, uh. When when they're making the movie, they have an actor come and stand in for the for the main roles. Hmm. So I've actually done scratch work. I did scratch work for Moana. That's where I started. Then they put me on to Zootopia. So I did Moana. I worked on for a long time. And then uh, I also did a session of scratch work. Well, like a, a, I think a, a couple sessions for uh, Sarah Silverman's character in Wreck-It Ralph too. Which later I was I oh, did a cool. different voice, but like. So that's kind of, a, actually, I really, that is, if people can find ways to do scratch work, you know, I was working with Ron, uh, the, the, Ron and John, the directors who did like Aladdin and Little Mermaid, and they also obviously did Moana, and and every week I was coming in and would do long sessions, and I would, in essence, have like free training into voiceover through them, because I was being directed by them.
0: So you're basically, you're laying down the voiceover tracks, and then eventually they'll bring in Sarah Silverman uh, to do yeah. her lines.
2: Interesting.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Um, so I'd imagine during this quarantine that there might be quite a bit of work for voiceover artists working in commercials and animation. So have you stayed fairly busy throughout this pandemic?
3: in like it's it feels like it's picking up now. i I have been like I, I feel I, I, things have felt a little bit normalized in terms of just I still have my own day-to-day auditions. I still was already recording from home. Um, but it does feel, I'm starting to feel it picking up in the last like two weeks and I've done yeah a few sessions from home and I just went in last week for my first actual in, in real life studio session. So wow. that was cool. Yeah. But it's cool to be able to do it, you know, in this little space.
0: I mean, to be able to work from home like that. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Della... Thanks so much for coming on and chatting with me today. Uh, You're an incredibly talented actor, artist, and person. You're also a great friend. Um, It's always fun catching up with you. (laughs) To everyone out there, if you listened all the way to the end of this second episode, I want to say thanks for listening. Give us a subscribe and those sweet five-star ratings, a nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality content in the future. Stay tuned because we've got eight more incredible episodes, including interviews with Melissa Fumero, Baron Vaughn, Chantal Tui, Writer Doyle, Sarah Paxton, Brandon Scott, Christine Woods, Tembi Locke, and Vinnie Chibber, to name more than a few. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our series graphics editor is Dan Olszewski. Take care of yourself, folks. Hang in there. You're doing great. See you next time.